0: Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash electionoffer. Hello, and welcome to the Americano podcast. My name is Freddie Gray, and I'm the Spectator's U.S. editor. And I'm here to tell you, as if you didn't already know, that the 2020 presidential election is now over, and Donald Trump appears to have lost. He isn't going away, however, not anytime soon. And it looks as though the last few weeks of a Trump presidency promised to be even more crazy, if that were possible, than the previous four or so years. We'll be discussing all that and more in the coming weeks. I'm joined today by Kelly B. Vlahos, who is senior advisor to the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And we're going to be asking if the foreign policy blob has fully returned to Washington, D.C., Kelly, first of all, thank you very much for coming on. It's great to be with you. We know each other from American conservative days. Yes. And I just wanted to talk to you about this today because it seems to me that we are back, fully back in the Obama era. We sort of knew that Biden foreign policy would be an Obama reboot. But I imagine even you have been surprised by the extent to which it is just the same people, just with slightly bigger jobs this time.
1: Right. I mean, there's just so much going on but this Recalls when Obama first won and was assembling his national security team in 2009. And I remember the disappointment when he started announcing his team, and it turned out they were all Hillary Clinton retreads. And uh, the mantra at the time was that Obama had won the election, but Hillary Clinton was winning the transition because he was looking around and I believe. You know, I can't crawl into his head, but I feel like he was not confident and he wasn't um, well prepared in terms of knowing the best people that he would populate his administration with. And so he turned to Hillary, particularly on the foreign policy front. And so there was massive disappointment in Washington because it was basically going back to the Clinton era. And, and most people in Washington felt like that's not what they voted for. They did not vote for the status quo ante. And I feel like that's what's happening today. I feel like you know, it's a little different because Biden was in that administration, in the Obama administration. And so it is. I guess it's more natural that he would turn to people that he has worked with in the past to populate the most important national security positions in his new administration. But that said, there were a lot of people working on the campaign who were coming from progressive roots who felt that the Obama foreign policy and national security policies of the past were bad and that we needed a reboot in terms of, you know, how we were addressing issues like wars in the Middle East, for example, and Syria. And a lot of the places that Obama administration had gotten us entrenched in, and now we're turning around and seeing that the people he has uh, nominated, particularly Anthony Blinken for secretary of state and Jake Sullivan uh, as his national security advisor, were people who were part and parcel of those failed policies. So there's a lot of disappointment, not only coming from people like me um, who have, you know, Singularly focused on seeing a change in foreign policy to less military uh, intervention and American uh, primacy, military primacy. But progressives who thought, "Hey, we we expected a seat at the table." Um, a lot of these people uh, were former Bernie uh, supporter, Bernie Sanders supporters, uh, Elizabeth Warren supporters, or had been with the Biden team from the campaign from the beginning, who have a different point of view that 's uh, less establishment view on foreign policy
0: well it 's interesting, is it because biden didn 't actually talk about foreign policy or also traditional foreign policy subjects very much at all i mean he to a large extent he didn't he didn 't talk about a lot of things, but I mean he made different noises on china, but it'd be fair to say that the casual observer of the election wouldn't have much of a clue what he was thinking about the Middle East or even iran and I think it's probably also fair to say that voters were not expecting this reversion that you're talking about to Obama-era policies in the Middle East, which now seems inevitable.
1: Right. And I mean, I I pretty much expected what we're seeing today um, only because you're right. I mean, he didn't have much a, of a foreign policy focus. So all we have to go on is his own foreign policy background and positions from the past, which were fairly conventional. Yes, he had some um, break with the Obama administration over the Iraq's uh, or Afghanistan surge uh, in 2009. He did not want to surge tens of thousands of more U.S. troops in Afghanistan, and he was overruled on that. But he supported the war in Iraq. He supported uh, the the Libyan intervention in 2009. Uh, Eleven, which was you know basically um, spearheaded by Hillary Clinton, he supported intervention in Syria. He, had, by all accounts, supported the drone wars that had escalated under uh, Obama. So he, he's been a, a conventional foreign policy uh, establishment guy, and who has shown no interest in making doing anything outside the box, other than he seemed to agree with his Democratic colleagues that it was time to get out of endless wars, but I feel like that was something, that mantra was begun by by Trump and had actually been highlighted by Tulsi Gabbard. And I felt like any nod to that getting out of endless wars was, you know, sort of just pro forma among the Democrats. I didn't feel any real uh, enthusiasm or any real vision behind that. So I guess I'm not surprised that he's relying on these old stalwart uh, aides uh, on on these uh, nominations that he's making. I think that most people in this country are more concerned right now with COVID and the economy and getting their kids back into schools. So uh, outside the Beltway, there's probably not a lot of angst over uh, this, but uh, at moving forward, when we have these issues like China, which is really going to, uh, you know, reveal itself to be a critical inflection point in national security, or looking back and or, or trying to re sort of establish relationship with Russia, getting our troops out of Afghanistan, you know, the people you put into these positions are really going to matter, and I feel like if we read what they've People like Michelle Flournoy, she's not been nominated yet for Secretary of Defense, but she's the biggest name out there right now. Or are Anthony Blinken, the things that they've written and done in the past, if there are any indicators of where they will be on this issue, personally, I don't
0: find it very positive. It's interesting that you mentioned Russia, because in 2008, the then-Vice President, sorry, 2009, beginning in 2009, the then-Vice President Joe Biden was sort of put in charge of what they called the Russia Reset. And that seemed to fall apart very quickly. And it ended with great feelings of animosity from the Obama-Biden people towards Russia. And this has become a sort of fixation for them over the next four years. And I think it looks like you're seeing uh, uh, an administration coming in now with people like Blinken and Sullivan that sound very much as though they are deeply opposed to Russia on everything. And they see Russia as not just somebody that interferes in American elections and gets Donald Trump elected, but also that it sort of has its hand in everything that goes wrong in world politics everywhere. Is that a fair assessment?
1: I think so. I mean, I, I can't drill down on exactly uh, what uh, Tony Blinken, uh, or how he feels about Russia at this very moment, because you're also you're also seeing some of their positions shift and soften uh, now as opposed to, you know, four years ago. That said, I feel like the real fault lines in the Democratic-slash-Russia, you know, relationship began during the Obama years when you had Hillary Clinton's State Department uh, under Victoria Newland and other democracy promoters who spent a lot of effort and US resources trying to get rid of Vladimir Putin uh, on the ground in places like Russia and Ukraine. And it was these this democracy promotion mission that I think really started to break apart The trust and diplomatic sort of whatever was that fragile, that diplomatic tissue that was, you know, had built up over the last 10 years, really ripped it apart. And so I feel like those people melted away, but they're coming back. And I'm not so sure, I'm not sure where Tony is on that, but remember a lot of these people, particularly Jake Sullivan worked very closely with Hillary Clinton and they feel very strong. We, hey, we all feel strongly about democracy. You don't have to like Vladimir Vladimir Putin, but you can say, hey, they're a sovereign country. And I understand why, you know, that put a bee in his bonnet that the American government was funding all of these initiatives and campaigns to unsee him uh, within, you know, within their own political machinery. We are accusing Russia of meddling in our own elections. We spent the last four years basically trying to tie Russia and Vladimir Putin, in particular, to electing Donald Trump, and so we can't turn around and say, "Well, it's okay." To fund the National Defense, uh, the, the National um, Endowment for Democracies, and, and these other sort of quasi governmental organizations so we can go over there and start funneling resources into uh, democratic campaigns. I, we should be a model for democracy, but we shouldn't be actively trying to change elections in other countries and unseat leaders. And so I believe. You know, that that debate about whether or not that is the role of the U.S. State Department is continuing in this town. And I feel like bringing back a lot of these old timers from the Clinton uh, State Department days is going to exacerbate those uh, that friction that already exists and has gotten worse over the last four years. Luckily there are also people in this town who believe that we need to have a, a, a true reset With Russia, And I feel will be more resistant to those kind of democracy promotion initiatives, you know, so maybe that's that's a battle uh, within the the beltway that's going to happen. But
0: we might already have a a clue as to what the first battle might be, and that might be about Ethiopia, Uh, because even before he was uh, appointed or it was public that he was going to be appointed as Secretary of State, uh, Anthony Blinken was tweeting about the humanitarian crisis in Ethiopia. Sullivan has also tweeted more recently about how distressing the humanitarian situation is there. Susan Rice, who hasn't been given a role in the administration but is thought to be somebody very close to these people and was expected to be Secretary of State, uh, has suggested that war crimes are happening in Ethiopia. So, I mean, it could be that they are gearing up for a first great big display of liberal internationalist muscle abroad, of democracy promotion, as you call it, abroad, with, with the crisis in Ethiopia.
1: Freddie, I hope you're you're absolutely wrong about that, but I think your instincts are right. I mean, we saw this when the Clinton administration came in and they, they wanted to make a big display uh, in Somalia and we had uh, Black Hawk down. You had Samantha Power uh, under the uh, Clinton administration who spent eight years vocally regretting that the United States didn't get uh, militarily involved in Rwanda and has spent um, her entire career after that promoting libertarian, I mean uh, humanitarian intervention or interventionist policies. Uh, she had come up, I believe, with the, the the phrase "responsibility to protect," which was a whole the, the whole theory that the military should be used for humanitarian uh, intervention throughout the world because it was our responsibility as a world power to do so. Uh, that phraseology went away because it was just so debated and had so many negative um, connotations for American primacy and hegemony. But the, 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 the motivation is still there, and I think you are picking up on some of the signals that should be very disturbing to all of us. Again, we don't want to be seen as just looking out onto the world and saying, well, people are dying, women are being raped, entire populations are being killed in genocides, and, 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 and we, we just can't do anything about it. It's not our responsibility. But we have to look at the history of American intervention. And when we did go into these places under the guise of humanitarian cause and see how that played out, it doesn't Necessarily work. We see that in Iraq. We see that in Libya. I mean, I'm, and those are just the recent examples. Mm. We go in there. We're usually not prepared to do what we need to do afterwards, and we create all sorts of blowback, new enemies, and kill civilians while we're there. And in the course of of, of trying to protect or save villages, we end up wiping them out. And it's, you know, I feel like the Democrats never really got it and they seem to be on a crusade to prove that this can work. And yes, I'm afraid that they are looking at places like Ethiopia, as well as Belarus, in particular, with all of the Russian baggage there to, to prove their point.
0: Yes, And I think, I mean, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I think what I find very strange is that all the rhetoric from uh, the Biden, the incoming, the office of the president-elect is that uh, it's a sort of return to normalcy and a return to calm and competence and sort of sensible foreign policy that you're going to get. But Donald Trump, and we don't need to always say for all his flaws, but let's say it anyway, for all his flaws and for all the chaos and madness of his foreign policy agenda did not uh, engage America in any disastrous new foreign wars. Um, he He's trying to end the war in Afghanistan, but he's probably failed to do that. It seems to me, in terms of military action, that Donald Trump was a much more calm and sane president than Obama was, and certainly than what these people like Antony Blinken seem to be suggesting a, a Biden presidency will be.
1: Right. I think, you know, uh, by... Being the disruptive president who eschewed the Washington elite and the blob, and basically said, "I'm going in there to clear up the swamp. I don't care about you ivy leaguers and your uh, establishment sort of uh, dwellers who have been career." government uh, officials who have most often been on the wrong side of our foreign policy failures i don't care about any new people so he was able to go in there with a sort of free of feeling like the pressure of the blob and i feel now looking at twitter and reading pieces about this sort of like reaction to the the biden victory and bringing the adults back into the room that that pressure is on to conform and to conform to conventional thinking about the American role in the world. And there's a lots of talk about re-engaging in, uh international organizations and basically, um, you know, sending the signal to our strategic allies that we're there, we're together, uh, forget the last four years, like it never even happened. But that's a signal to me that we are just going back to a period in which, as you pointed out, uh, President Obama succumbed to that pressure and we saw the arming of so-called moderate rebels in Syria making that war worse. We saw the assassination of Gaddafi and the airstrikes in in Libya and the resulting failed state that has happened in the war that is continuing to this day. We saw how he succumbed to the pressure to surge tens of thousands of more troops into Afghanistan after promising we were gonna get out. And that war is ongoing today. You know, I can go on, but I feel like once Obama got in office, he did cave to the pressure of this establishment thinking about foreign policy, whereas with, where Trump you know, came in as the guy who was just gonna ignore it. Now, we can debate about his policy getting out of the Iran deal. You know, That's one area where I feel maybe the Biden, the Biden team will do us a good turn and get back into that deal. There were tons of things that, that Trump could have done better, but I feel like by blowing off the so-called experts in, in Washington, he actually made some space for different kinds of thinking. And, you know, there are people, as you know, Freddie, in this town uh, who have been working for years to pursue a, a, a policy of restraint and non interventionism to do things differently. And they haven't had the space. And I feel like he opened that space for people. Now, whether we can jump in and grab it or we're going to be thwarted again because of. The adults coming back in the room.
0: I, that's there's a- an element of sort of class war within the blob, or within the sort of rival blobs, if you like, in Washington. I mean, if you look at these incoming Biden administration, John Kerry, for instance, who's going to be climate envoy. I mean, he strikes me as as close as you can get to a sort of blue-blooded Democrat as as you as as you get in America. He's an aristocrat, really, by Amer- in American terms as as is Blinken, who's a sort of preppy oh, yeah. um, upper west side, or upper east side, sorry, guy who also grew up in Paris. These are very much the children of the democratic elite. And they subscribe to a certain way of thinking about world of flares, which is far more internationalist, um, perhaps for better, but also perhaps for worse.
1: Absolutely, and Michelle Flournoy, who, you know, as of this recording has not been nominated for anything, but it seems to be the, the top pick so far for secretary of defense, you know, her parents were uh, Hollywood, uh, her father was a cinematographer, her mother was a, a dancer, uh, so she went she, you know, she, went to high school uh, among all of the Hollywood stars, kids, and then went from there and then went to Harvard and Oxford, and then went right into uh, the Clinton administration. So her entire professional career has been, you know, has taken place in this rarefied world of the elites. And yes, they do think the same way. They're absolutely conformist about their point of view and very snobby about it too. I mean, one of the problems with President Trump is that he, he, was, he was clearly an outsider. People would say, well, he's a millionaire. He's part of the, the 1%. You know, I get that, but he was never of the body. You know they they looked down on him even that the military looked down on him he, he didn't talk the way they did he didn't go to the same schools he didn't read the same books he didn't read books he watched television and it is a snobbery it, it is a, a, a class issue in this town uh, I'm sure uh, in London is this it's the same way in New York City it's all about where you went to school who you studied with who your mentors were it's very keen Yes. and i feel that the upper the the further up the ladder in the national security world the more that stuff matters and it ends up mattering in the pentagon as well yes where you would think wow if you this this should be the ultimate meritorious you know institution where people come up through the ranks the ranks because of their you know district, strategic mindset their critical thinking skills you know all of the the building blocks of being a good soldier and strategist no it's all about who you are who you know and when you get into that rarefied e-ring of the pentagon it also includes your degrees and your pedigree and it's unfortunate because that really matters very little when it comes to critical thinking about strat grand strategy you know, and war
0: policy. And there's a sort of glossy, uh, you know, people often talk about sort of the West Wing element. You know, when you read the write-ups about the various profiles, quite fawning profiles we've read about Blinken in the last few days, there's a sort of glossy kind of, you know, these are the good guys are back, sort of tone to everything. But there is a seedy underbelly to this world too, which is the the lobbying that goes on. And uh, American Prospect broke this story, it was a very good one, that about the extent of Blinken's lobbying in the last few years. So as soon as he was out of office, uh, out the Obama administration left, he set up a, a lobbying shop very close to the White House called West Exec. Can you tell us a bit about that and uh, what that might indicate about which way American foreign policy is going to go?
1: Sure. I mean, uh, there were a couple of former Obama officials, lower level officials who thought it would be great to start a consulting firm. They sought out Michelle Flournoy and Anthony Blinken because of their you know, high profile uh, positions in the Obama administration and brought them on. They, they, they founded West Exec uh, Advisors. They are not lobbyists because if they were lobbyists, they would be held to uh, certain restrictions and standards and disclosure. so they are consultants, but basically they are lobbying. They're trading on their influence within the the, uh, Pentagon and the Obama administration, the White House, to basically collect a number of high profile corporate clients who are looking for Pentagon contracts. And they are basically matchmakers between the private sector, corporate uh, interests, and the Pentagon. And they bring those two together. And, you know, Michelle Flournoy was really great at this. She left the Obama administration. She was also the founder of a major think tank, the uh, Center for New American Security, which gets a ton of uh, defense contracting money. And basically goes also goes to work at the same time for uh, a group called the Boston consulting group and she basically went from getting about a million dollars in pentagon contracts to 32 million within a i I think a couple years of taking michelle on as a consultant so basically this is what they do but you know the problem with that freddie is that they're not just you know matching up these these uh, companies with with contracts in the pentagon All of these contracts involve weapon systems, delivery systems, AI, drone technology, weapons of war. And in in order to, to make these contracts work, to keep them rolling and online, you have to have a national security policy that's designed for war. So there's constant threat inflation where China is concerned, for example. You know, oh, we got to beef up our military in the South China Sea uh, because they are a threat. You know, that this is the next big ch- challenge, a pivot to Asia. Well, what does that mean? That means that a ton of contracts go online in the, the Pentagon, and they need companies to, to fulfill them. Now, usually those contracts go to the top five defense contractors like Raytheon And Lockheed Martin and Boeing but then you have all sorts of other programs this is this is a a Leviathan you know we're talking 400 upwards of 700 billion dollars a year so there's tons of of gravy to be had you need a Michelle Flournoy and and a Tony Blinken to be your representative saying hey I know Google's looking for this AI project, you know, you know um, or I know the Pentagon's looking for, for somebody to fulfill this. Hey, this would be great. You know, and so what does that mean for our foreign policy? It means that these people have made their money, their grist off of making sure we are forward deployed, that we are constantly building up new technologies, constantly building more weapons and planes, um, because that's where their bread is buttered. So, why would they go into back in the government, revolve back in and then suddenly forget all of their friends in the defense industry, all of all the work they did at the think tanks that were constantly pushing out papers and reports that supported these kind of policies? I mean, it's all part of a blob, and um, I think a lot of progressives and people like myself are are concerned. Because instead of choosing people outside of that world to come in and start working policy, and hopefully in the American interest, they're choosing people who have been spending the last 20 years working for war, Inc., you know, the war interests.
0: It's, it's interesting you mentioned the revolving door. I thought there was a particularly delicious or, or revolting detail of the West exec story was that they had a contingency clause in the lease on the office property, that would mean that, as if a democratic candidate was elected president and they were called into an administration, they could cancel the contract on the office property and thus save a bit of money. I mean, it it is obviously uh, sort of ripe for a lot of corruption. This sort of setup between of people flitting in between uh, consultancy or lobbying and and government roles. I wonder progressives are already starting to make some noises, some disgruntled noises. There's a lot of people on the right who are not pro-war. There are, there are a lot of never-Trump people on the right who are quite excited about how um, in line with, with their uh, agenda the, the new administration seems. But I wonder, how, for how long do you think the Biden administration can keep saying, uh, at least we're not Donald Trump? How long do you think they, they'll be able to get away with that before people start saying, well, hang on, you need to Justify what you're doing in foreign policy.
1: Yeah, no, I, I don't know how long that's it's going to take. I think the big challenge uh, immediately will be China and how Biden approaches that thorny issue. Because on the campaign trail, he was constantly giving mixed signals. He was saying, you know, we need to, you know, we need to be more uh, diplomatic. We should not see China as the enemy. But at the same token, he was saying. Uh, well, we have to be tough because of you know they have stolen our technology, their human rights issue with the Uyghurs, uh, their total surveillance. So you know uh, trade issues. So he was giving this sort of mixed view of how he would approach China, and he couched that all in well. I'm I'm not going to be like Donald Trump, and I'm I'm not going to make things worse. But he also didn't talk about. Uh, whether or not he was going to immediately uh, revoke the tariffs, for example. Um, He certainly didn't talk about demilitarizing in East Asia. And and as a matter of fact, his own people, Anthony Blinken included, and Michel Flournoy uh, have spoken, uh, written quite voraciously about how we do need to build up our military deterrence in the region.
0: There's not a lot of there's not a lot of contracts in demilitarization.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So going right back to what I was saying. And so they've been right front and center about basically continuing the status quo. And I think that's because the military itself is four square on keeping a, a forward force proje- projection in that region. This is not something that they are going to reverse on. And I feel Democrats always have to prove that they're tough and not be seen as, as soft on an adversary. I think they many of them believe in the great power politics and are not willing to concede to China. And so I feel like this is going to be a major test for him. Now, whether or not it's going to be a, a huge uh, public opinion issue, I don't know. Like I said, Americans are so... You know, distracted right now by by the pandemic and 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 other domestic issues, that I'm not sure it's going to matter. It'll it'll ma- matter for us uh, watching this, but I would also like to see him get us out of Afghanistan. I think that was the best thing that Trump did was really push the issue, basically stood up to his own generals and said, "I want I want our troops home by." Christmas, that's not going to happen, so he's relented, but they're literally going to cut the number in half by January, and I would like to see Biden follow through and get us out of that war, and I I hope that hit the people that he's putting in place aren't the ones that are going to say, well, you know, we sort of have to stay for just a little, more, a little while more because we don't want to create more terrorists, we don't want to open a vacuum uh, for security, you know, women's rights, you know, all, all of the the, the, the canards that, that have been rolled out over the last 20 years. I hope to God that that's not the direction that this this issue will go, but I'm not so sure given the, the people he's putting into place.
0: Kelly, we better leave it there, but thank you very much for coming on. I hope you'll come on again and we could do a sort of foreign policy blob watch.
1: Yes, I would love that.
0: Let's do it again. Thanks again, Kelly.